Hey friends, M. Faring here. I am so glad you're joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope we're able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all, plus learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay, friends, let's begin. Welcome back, everyone. Today, we find ourselves picking up where we left off after studying the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. After God sends them out of the garden, we see a pattern of sin continue in their children. Unfortunately, what we will actually see happening here is a downward spiral of sin, beginning with Cain's murder of his brother Abel. Definitely puts a whole new take on that phrase parents often say, you know the one, they fight so much I hope they don't kill each other. My, what a thought in relation to Cain and Abel's story though. Yikes. As always, we have a lot to study in this episode, so let's just dive right in with a reading of Genesis chapter 4 from the New Living Translation. Now Adam had sexual relations with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant. When she gave birth to Cain, she said, With the Lord's help, I have produced a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother and named him Abel. When they grew up, Abel became a shepherd, while Cain cultivated the ground. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Why are you so angry? The Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master. One day, Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Afterward, the Lord asked Cain, where is your brother? Where is Abel? I don't know, Cain responded. Am I my brother's guardian? But the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are cursed and banished from the ground, which has swallowed your brother's blood. No longer will the ground yield good crops for you, no matter how hard you work. From now on, you will be a homeless wanderer on the earth. Cain replied to the Lord, My punishment is too great for me to bear. You have banished me from the land and from your presence. You have made me a homeless wanderer. Anyone who finds me will kill me. The Lord replied, No, for I will give a sevenfold punishment to anyone who kills you. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain to warn anyone who might try to kill him. So Cain left the Lord's presence and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now Cain had sexual relations with his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Then Cain founded a city, which he named Enoch after his son. Enoch had a son named Irad. Irad became the father of Mahujel. Mahujel became the father of Methusiel. Methusiel became the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women. The first was named Ada, and the second Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal, who was the first of those who raise livestock and live in tents. His brother's name was Jubel, the first of all who played the harp and flute. Lamech's other wife, Zillah, gave birth to a son named Tubalcain. He became an expert in forging tools of bronze and iron. Tubalcain had a sister named Nema. One day Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Listen to me, you wives of Lamech. I have killed a man who attacked me, a young man who wounded me. If someone who kills Cain is punished seven times, then the one who kills me will be punished seventy-seven times. 
Adam had sexual relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to another son. She named him Seth, for she said, God has granted me another son in place of Abel, whom Cain killed. When Seth grew up, he had a son and named him Enosh. At that time, people first began to worship the Lord by name. So that's Genesis chapter 4, my friends. Whew, there's a lot going on in there for sure. The NIV Faith Life Study Bible references chapter 4, verses 1 through 26 by stating, Genesis 4 introduces the theme of conflict between brothers. This theme will return in the story of Jacob and Esau in Genesis chapters 25 and 27, and again with Joseph and his brothers in Genesis 37. In each story, an older brother is passed over in favor of the younger. As a teaser, put a pin in that idea as we will definitely be developing this theme of sibling rivalry in the chapters to come. The Faith Life Study Bible note goes on to say that this narrative also illustrates the the deepening effects of sin in the world. Hmm. The NLT Life application also refers to this developing pattern of sin and evil by reminding us, Adam and Eve's disobedience brought sin into the human race. They may have thought their sin, eating a piece of fruit, wasn't very bad, but notice how quickly their sinful nature developed in their children. Simple disobedience quickly degenerated to outright murder. Adam and Eve acted only against God, but Cain acted against both God and other people. A small sin has a way of growing out of control. Before we get ahead of ourselves with all this sin and murder talk, though, let's consider that here in these verses, we see that the oldest children of Adam and Eve inherited a beautiful but fallen world from their parents. In the Garden of Eden, everything they needed was provided, but after they were banished due to their sin, they had to struggle against the elements in order to provide food, clothing, and shelter for themselves. As adults, Adam and Eve's sons focused on different ways to work and fulfill God's purpose in the world. Cain became a farmer, working the land so that it produced food, while Abel became a shepherd, caring for flocks that provided meat, wool, and other resources needed for survival. Both sons worshipped God through sacrifices. The question is, why did God reject Cain's offering and accept Abel's? All of my research seemed to agree that there was nothing wrong with Cain's offering of grain to the Lord. Later laws given in the book of Leviticus ask for both animal and plant offerings, so it is highly unlikely that Abel's offering was more highly regarded because it was an animal sacrifice. Instead, it seems to be related to the fact that Cain brought only quote-unquote some of his crops. As we will later learn in the book of Exodus, God requires the first and best. The heart attitude of Cain's gift, rather than the offering itself, seems to be the most likely reason God did not accept it. Abel's offering represented the first and best of what he had to offer. Cain and Abel worshipped God with different motivations, which seems to be the reasons for God's different responses to each one. As we read in verses 4 through 6, the Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Why are you so angry, the Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? Did you catch that, my friends? God begins a conversation with Cain and asked him to consider why he is so angry. After his gift was rejected, God gave Cain the chance to adjust his attitude, right his wrong action, and try again. God actually encouraged him to do so here. However, Cain not only refused, but even went to the extreme by killing his brother in a fit of jealous anger. You may recall from our last episode together that I referenced a study I'm working on by Lisa Turkers called Forgiving What You Can't Forget. She references what is happening in these scriptures when she says, The story of Cain and Abel is the first time we see a human being having to make the choice between being ruled by bitterness and anger 
or surrendering these stirred up emotions to God. Here is what I missed in earlier readings of these verses. I missed in between Cain getting angry and killing his brother that the Lord came and had a talk with Cain. And we can read about it in Genesis 4, 6, like we just did. When the Lord asked Cain, why are you so angry? The Hebrew word for angry here could be translated, why are you kindling this frustration? Or why are you heating up your worries? In other words, Cain, why are you so very angry and letting that anger consume you? And then the Lord asked him in the same verse, why is your face downcast? And when I researched downcast, it is a Hebrew phrase that indicates anxiety and depression. So putting this together, the Lord is asking him, why are you heating up all of your worries and frustrations to the point where you are absolutely filled with anxiety and depression? And then suddenly, this isn't just a story about Cain and Abel. It was as if God was speaking to me. And it started to feel very personal, like the Lord was saying to me, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So when I truly stop and take a moment to make this personal to me, I have some really big questions like, how in the world am I supposed to rule over sin? And what am I to do with my chaotic emotions like anger? What do we do when complicated emotions get stirred up inside us? Given this is such a sensitive topic, I wanted to know what God's word instructs and how we can rule over anger and sin. Psalm 4.4 speaks to this when it advises in the ESV translation, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Or the NLT reads, Don't sin by letting anger control you. Think about it overnight and remain silent. Thank you, Lisa, for giving us such a valuable scripture to consider when our emotions are spinning out of control. My study note for Psalm chapter 4, verse 4 explains what is being said here in this way. Angry feelings are not sinful, but letting anger control you does lead to sin. Instead of acting on our emotions, we should think about our circumstances overnight. We might be disturbed as we sleep, but silence and redirecting our emotions toward God calms our hearts and minds, plus opens our hearts to trust God in the situation that stirred these chaotic emotions in the first place. What an important reminder for us to pause and consider God as we process our emotions, to then be able to do what is right, while at the same time not allow sin to rule over us. Truthfully, I'm still processing the incredible grace God showed Cain in the midst of his fit of anger by interrupting in his thoughts to speak truth and direction into his life. Now that's amazing grace, my friends. In this same way, take a listen to Cain's profile found in the New Living Translation Life Application Study Bible. Cain got angry, furious. Both he and his brother Abel had given offerings to God, and his had been rejected. Cain's reaction gives us a clue that his attitude was probably wrong from the start. Cain had a choice to make. He could correct his attitude about his offering to God, or he could take out his anger on his brother. His decision is a clear reminder of how often we are aware of opposite choices, yet still choose the wrong one just as Cain did. We may not be choosing murder, but we are still intentionally choosing what we shouldn't. The feelings motivating our behavior can't always be changed by simple thought power, but here we can begin to experience God's willingness to help. Asking for his help to do what is right can prevent us from setting into motion actions that we will later regret. Moving on, Genesis chapter 4 verse 7 reads, Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. The NIV Faith Life Study Bible study note says, The Hebrew word used here can refer to lying in wait, 
like a predator does when waiting for prey. It is also related to a word from a Mesopotamian religion used in reference to demons who are believed to guard entrances to buildings. Thus, it is possible that sin is being personified here as a demonic force waiting to pounce on Cain. This fits with the curse of the serpent who God says will strike at the heel of his people in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 7 through 9 are one of the scripture cross-references I found here in my study Bible. In the NLT it reads, So humble yourselves into the mighty power of God, and at the right time he will lift you up in honor. Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering you are. As I look for similarities between this warning in 1 Peter and the one God gives to Cain in Genesis 4, it seems sin and Satan are both compared to lion-like attacks, predator characteristics such as prowling, devouring, and crouching. So we see sin is pictured as a vicious animal lying in wait to pounce on Cain. Either sin will dominate Cain, or Cain will resist the temptation to sin. No matter what is actually referenced here specifically, I believe we can safely say that there is much danger involved in this sin that was crouching at Cain's door. And in order for Cain to overcome the sin that was waiting to attack and destroy him, he would have to give up his jealous anger toward Abel. God asked Cain to pull back from all the emotions swirling inside him and choose to do the right and good thing. Instead, Cain murders Abel. The Bible recap states, Cain's murder of Abel happened about 2,500 years before God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, but Cain still knew murder was wrong. He even feared other people killing him in response to it, as referenced to Genesis chapter 4, verse 14, when he said, Anyone who finds me will kill me, seems to me to be further proof that none of us need to know the law of God to be able to recognize good versus evil, especially now that we, as believers, have the Holy Spirit living inside us to guide us in knowing and obeying the truths found in God's word. Incredible. Moving on in chapter 4, the NLT Life Application Study Bible note for verses 19 through 26 states, Unfortunately, we see here that when left to themselves, people tend to get worse instead of better. This short summary of Lamech's family shows us the continuous development of sin as time passes. Another killing occurred, presumably in self-defense. Violence was on the rise. Two distinct groups were emerging. One, those who showed indifference to sin and evil. And two, those who worshiped the Lord, such as Seth's descendants as found in Genesis chapter 4, verse 26. Please be sure to press pause and go back to reread these verses if you don't remember what was said about Cain's descendant named Lamech. Also, I want to point your attention to verse 26 about the descendants of Seth. If you recall, it reads, At that time, people first began to worship the Lord by name. My research indicates that this phrase is best understood to indicate the beginnings of the modern-day church, a public worship of God and community with other believers. This reference is found all the way back in Genesis, my friends. Wow. Before we move on to chapter 5 in the book of Genesis, consider this. In chapter 4, verse 25, it reads, Eve gave birth to another son. She named him Seth, for she said, God has granted me another son in place of Abel, whom Cain killed. So here we see Seth would take Abel's place as a leader in the line of God's faithful people. The lineage story then returns in chapter 5 to Adam to follow the line of Seth, whose line eventually leads to Abraham and the Israelite nation. More on that later. Continuing on in Genesis, I will now read chapter 5 from the New Living Translation. 
And can I just say beforehand, you have my apologies from the very beginning before I even start reading chapter five for how much I butcher all these names. (laughs) All right, let's begin now. This is a written account of the descendants of Adam. When God created human beings, he made them to be like himself. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and called them human. When Adam was 130 years old, he became the father of a son who was just like him in his very image. He named his son Seth. After the birth of Seth, Adam lived another 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Adam lived 930 years, and then he died. When Seth was 105 years old, he became the father of Enosh. After the birth of Enosh, Seth lived another 807 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Seth lived 912 years, and then he died. When Enosh was 90 years old, he became the father of Kenan. After the birth of Kenan, Enosh lived another 815 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Enosh lived 905 years, and then he died. When Kenan was 70 years old, he became the father of Mahel. After the birth of Mahel, Kenan lived another 840 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Kenan lived 910 years, and then he died. When Mahel was 65 years old, he became the father of Jared. After the birth of Jared, Mahel lived another 830 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Mahel lived 895 years, and then he died. When Jared was 162 years old, he became the father of Enoch. After the birth of Enoch, Jared lived another 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Jared lived 962 years, and then he died. When Enoch was 65 years old, he became the father of Methuselah. After the birth of Methuselah, Enoch lived in close relationship with God for another 300 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Enoch lived 365 years walking in close fellowship with God. Then one day he disappeared because God took him. When Methuselah was 187 years old, he became the father of Lamech. After the birth of Lamech, Methuselah lived another 782 years and he died after having other sons and daughters. He was 969 years old. When Lamech was 182 years old, he became the father of a son. Lamech named his son Noah, for he said, May he bring us relief for our work and the painful labor of farming this ground that the Lord has cursed. After the birth of Noah, Lamech lived another 595 years and he had other sons and daughters. Lamech lived 777 years and then he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Before we go any further, I feel this is the best place of any to remind us all of what we learned about the importance of genealogies back in the study of the lineage of Jesus during the Advent season episodes of the podcast. As tempting as it may be, we absolutely must remember to not glaze over or check out when reading all these names, or worse yet, skip over these passages altogether. These are real people with real emotions, joys, and struggles just like us. The NLT Life Application Study Note for Chapter 5 reads, The Bible contains several lists of ancestors called genealogies. Two basic views concerning these lists include, 1. They are complete, recording the entire history of a family, tribe, or nation. Or 2. They are not intended to be exhaustive and may include only famous people or the heads of families. He became the father of, could refer not just to a son, but also to a more distant descendant. Why are genealogies included in the Bible? The Hebrew people passed on their beliefs through oral tradition. For many years in many places, writing was primitive or non-existent. Stories were told to children who passed them on to their children. Genealogies gave a skeletal outline that helped people remember the stories. 
For centuries, these genealogies were added to and passed down from family to family. Even more important than preserving family tradition, genealogies were included to confirm the Bible's promise that the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, will be born in the line of Adam and also the line of Abraham. Genealogies point out that people are important to God as individuals. Therefore, God refers to people by name, mentioning their lifespan and descendants. The next time you feel overwhelmed in a vast crowd, remember that the focus of God's attention and love is on the individual and on you. What a great reminder for all of us, friends. In an effort to tie what we have studied so far in this episode with where we are headed in our future studies, please know that the genealogies of Genesis go beyond simply recording history. Take a listen to this excerpt from an online article from the BibleStudyTools.com website titled, Why Should We Bother to Read Biblical Genealogies? The article begins with this question, just what is a biblical genealogy? Simply put, a genealogy is a line of descent traced continuously from an ancestor. At first glance, a biblical genealogy is no different than how you or I may trace our family history, but it is actually so much more. Biblical genealogies are telling a story. They are telling the story of God's restoring to humanity the rest, rule, and relationship we had with him in the Garden of Eden. And he is doing this through the seed of the woman, as was referenced in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. They are often used to tell smaller stories, such as introducing a character like Noah, yet every genealogy ultimately is tied to this greater story. So how important is it that I read that some guy that I do not know fathered some other person that I've never heard of with the great-grandfather of a biblical character I'm only vaguely familiar with? Do genealogies matter? Why should I bother with them? Sure, you can skip right through them, but I wouldn't. And here are a few reasons why. Number one, genealogies matter because it places the Bible in real history. Number two, genealogies matter because it tells us that ordinary people and ordinary actions matter. Number three, genealogies matter because they remind us of God's sovereign care. And number four, genealogies matter because they tell of God's grace. So why bother with genealogies? They can be difficult to read through because they are so unfamiliar, but I would encourage you to read through them slowly, and as you stumble through unfamiliar and faceless names, consider the God who is behind the story. Even though you and I do not know many of these stories, God does, and we are in our own cultural moment and responsible for our own slice of time because of all that has gone before us. We will likely someday be one of those faceless names, but we aren't faceless to the Lord. Our story is part of His story. So as an important side note here before moving on, I want to take a moment to encourage you to find the link to this article in the show notes, to read it in its entirety, especially the author's development of all four of those reasons why we should not skip over a genealogy in the text. I promise it is well worth your time, especially as we will continue to encounter many, many more genealogy listings in our study time together in the days, weeks, months, and even years to come. With that in mind, Please take note that these genealogies we read today highlight God's blessing, verify the family heritage of important individuals, and hold the Genesis narrative together by showing the continuation of family lines. Adam's genealogy through Seth traces 10 generations to Noah, with the flood intervening before another 10 from Noah to Abram. The number 10 indicates completeness, such as the 10 plagues found in Exodus chapter 7 and the 10 commandments from Exodus chapter 20. Noah closed history before the flood, as we will see in chapter 6, while Abram, whose name is later changed to Abraham, began a new era, as we will see as we study chapters 12 and on in Genesis. Additionally, 
And remembering our conversation in the last episode about Satan trying throughout history to avoid getting his head crushed, as God had promised in Genesis 3, verse 15, alongside the value of now recognizing that we are thoroughly needing to read these biblical genealogies, consider this from the Knowing the Bible Genesis 12-week study. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 promised that the offspring of the woman would bruise the serpent's head. The genealogies of Genesis, therefore, help us trace the development of this offspring. Seth is important since after Abel is killed and Cain exiled, we find Eve saying in Genesis chapter 4, verse 25, God has granted me another son in place of Abel, whom Cain killed. Adam was created in the likeness of God, and Adam became the father of a son who was just like him in his very image, a son he named Seth, as found in chapter 5, verse 3. This image is then passed down through the blessed line of Seth in Genesis 5. The seventh generation in the blessed offspring of Seth is Enoch, who walked in close fellowship with God and then one day disappeared because God took him, as found in chapter 5, verse 24. The tenth generation is Noah, who will bring us relief from our work and the painful labor of farbing this ground that the Lord has cursed, as found in verse 29. In contrast, the seventh generation in the offspring of Cain is Lamech, who multiplies the sin of Cain. In genealogical accounts, the number of generations is significant. Matthew's gospel records three sets of 14 generations, which are six sets of seven generations. As a result, Jesus is the seventh set of generations. The line of Adam through Seth culminates in Jesus. Pretty interesting to see how even the numbers of generations is important in the telling of God's continuing rescue story. Incredible. In my research, I found it said in various places that the wording of chapter 5 demonstrates the tragedy of human sin. Person after person appears and then is gone. The repetition of the phrase, and then he died, reminds the reader of the implications of the curse. No longer can people live forever. They appear for a moment and then return to the ground, as referenced in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. There is no escaping this reality. The just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous, from Adam to Noah, all die. This chapter is often called the obituary column due to the repeated use of the phrase, he died. Yikes. We do see one bright spot in this otherwise dismal chapter, though. Enoch is said to have enjoyed a close relationship with God. Although little is said about the faith of these people mentioned here, Enoch's life should give us hope. These verses provide the first break in the pattern we have seen so far. As usual, we are given the number of years that a man lived after fathering the son who would lead to Noah and his children. This time, though, we're told something about that man. Enoch walked with God, a fact that will be repeated in the surprising verses to follow. In the Bible, the expression walked with God refers to someone who is obedient and devoted to the Lord, a person who makes a relationship with God part of their everyday lifestyle, one who honors God with their choices in every aspect of life. In Enoch's case, this was so vital a point that it's mentioned twice, both here and in verse 24. We also know from these passages that God chose to remove Enoch from earth prior to his natural death. Enoch is the first of the men listed in this chapter whose story does not end with the phrase, and he died. This was probably an event similar to the end of Elijah's ministry when he was taken bodily by God into heaven. 2 Kings chapter 2 verse 11 says this about Elijah. As Elijah and Elisha were walking along and talking, suddenly a chariot of fire appeared, drawn by horses of fire. It drove between the two men, separating them, and Elijah was carried by a whirlwind into heaven. These are some of the most mysterious verses in the Bible. 
In both cases, considering how amazing and unusual this type of event is, we might have hoped for more details. And yet, every word in the Bible is focused on a particular purpose. In Enoch's case, a real purpose is to explain the genealogy of Adam to Noah through Seth. So far as that is concerned, exactly what happened to Enoch is beside the point. Just for the sake of our study together, though, let's lean in a bit more to look at the story of Enoch. So what does it mean that Enoch was not, for God took him? Apparently, in response to Enoch's walking with God, God prevented Enoch from dying. Instead, God took him away. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 5 says this, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended for having pleased God. This life of faith, Hebrews tells us, pleased God so much that God prevented Enoch from passing away from this life in the normal way. Wow, what an amazing life testimony Enoch has for sure. Don't worry, though. We will take an even deeper dive into this idea of what it means to walk with God next time, because we will study Noah, who, guess what, is also described as one who walked with God in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. Stay tuned. So, as I promised at the end of the last episode, I wanted to take a moment here to share some more Bible study tips with you. A fewer ones not already discussed in episode 2, How I Study the Bible. I guess that's what's called bonus material, right? (laughs) Anyway, I hope you find that these tips will not only help you with some framework for our study times together, but also help you lean into the tougher-to-tackle parts of Scripture. Okay, let's check out these together. Study tip number one. Begin your study time in prayer. Praying before jumping into your daily reading helps you better grasp what God wants to reveal to you through His Word. Just as God opened the minds of his first disciples so they could understand scriptures and see Luke chapter 24, verse 45 for more on that, he can do the same for both you and me. Truthfully, prayer is also a way to turn your study time into a conversation with God, the God of the universe who desires to meet and even reveal himself to you on these thin, crinkly pages. Tip number two, remember that you don't have to be intimidated by the Bible. Explore the promptings you sense when you're reading. Pausing to reflect, pray, and journal will lead you to the personal messages and lessons about God that He Himself has planned specifically for you. When you read scripture, do so slowly. Note every word. Look for repetition and themes. Watch for a single word, phrase, verse that catches your eye, stirs you, tugs at your heart. Scripture provides encouragement, comfort, gratitude, conviction, knowledge, motivation, and so much more. What stands out to you? What you're curious about? or what you have questions about are all a great place to start when journaling. Why does journaling work? I'm so glad you asked, my friend. Journaling scripture helps you concentrate on the passage as well as focus your mind. Honestly, journaling is not just about understanding the content of the Bible. A Bible journal records a conversation with God. It is a place you can reflect on your raw thoughts, ask God questions, and begin to process what you are discovering. One of the blessings of journaling is that years from now, When you reread your journal entries, you will see God's work in your life. You will rediscover passages of scripture that were important to you and see how you are not only growing in your faith, but also in your understanding of God's word. And as a fun but important to me side note, journaling provides you with a great excuse to buy a cute journal and some new pens. Well, I know I always seem to be looking for a reason to buy black and gold notebooks and a wide variety of pens anyway. Actually, I may need an intervention over here. All right, so on to number three. Take time to research definitions, 
correlations between scriptures, cultural meanings, summaries, and so on, as that will help you to better understand what you're reading. Be sure to check out the Bible Study Resources page over at mfaring.com for my top nine favorites that I consistently use in my own study time. Study tip number four, extend grace to yourself. It's okay if it takes you longer to process a particular part and or you just get behind a bit. Just keep working through the readings at a pace that works for you. It's your Bible study. And the fact that this podcast airs every other week actually gives all of us additional time to dig into what we are studying together. Win-win, right? I'm so praying that you choose to use one or even all of these tips to draw closer to God in your study times. Okay, so friends, if you have liked this episode, could you share it with a friend, subscribe, rate, review, you know, do all the things people like to do with a podcast. (laughs) I sure do want to thank you in advance. And as I mentioned a bit ago, don't forget that the Open Our Bibles Together with M. Faring podcast releases every other Wednesday. Up next is just a little story you may have heard of before about a man named Noah, an ark, a whole bunch of animals in a flood. Whether you've heard or even read that one a thousand times or have no idea what I'm talking about, I do hope you will join me back here as we take a closer look. I can't wait. In the meantime, though, be sure to check out the show notes pages on my mfaring.com website for all the episode links and details. This is M. Faring. And I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time, my friends.